Section 21 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aretha Smith. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 2. Chapter 4. Part 4. In the evening, Joanna wrote to Lawrence. It was a longer letter than the one she had sent to Louis, and it was written with labor and self-loathing. She tried to persuade herself that Lawrence would not suffer more than she had suffered with Bob. Sometimes one was made to suffer. Sometimes one made others suffer. That was life. Besides, Lawrence loving her as he did would necessarily have suffered even if she had not given him this false promise of happiness. She had only accelerated, not created his misfortune. So she reasoned, while she filled her letter with ready-made phrases of penitence. She was dreadfully sorry and ashamed. Her conduct had been unforgivable. It was hardly possible for her to say the truth to him, for the truth would have run something like this. Because you have a fitful, incomprehensible attraction for me, and because I trust you more than anyone I know, also because I wanted to feel I had power over you, I have used you shamefully. I have made you tell me that you loved me, not only to make sure of that, but to force the hand of the man I am myself in love with. On the whole, I have succeeded. And now, though I am surprised at myself, and perhaps ashamed, I am not repentant. All I wish is never to see you again. Your pain might trouble me, and I want to be free from remorse and reproach to follow my desire. If you will keep out of my way, I shall try to feel friendly toward you. This, however, though not the letter Joanna wrote, was not so very unlike the letter that Lawrence was to read at the other end. Throughout all the trite, laborious phrases put down upon paper, the reality made its effect clearly enough. That same night, Julie took her to bed with a bad gastric attack, which had been threatening her for some time, and the doctor was sent for. It was not immediately serious, he said when he had questioned her, but she must have special care if it was not to become so. Above all, for the next few weeks, she should have absolute rest. But while the doctor was speaking, there spread over Julie's face a crafty and obstinate expression, well known to her children. As soon as it was gone, she declared that she felt better, and that it was a pity he had been sent for at all. And the next morning, do what they would, she got up. She could rest, she said, after the flitting, which on account of incoming tenants to Colessi Street could not well be put off to a later date. Meanwhile, it was urgent that she should set to and start clearing those many places of hers which were choked with the accumulations of nearly thirty years. This clearing business was an obsession and a shame to Julie, and a matter in which she was fiercely secretive, and sacred above all, from the prying eyes of her children and servants, did she hold the famous middle part of her huge bedroom wardrobe with its many shelves and drawers. 
when the children were small they had regarded as a treat of treats that they should be in the room on the rare occasion of a cleaning of this receptacle by their mother it was always kept locked and the key in julie's key-basket even when joanna became a woman she had felt it something of an honor to be handed the key and asked to fetch something out of the front part and now by the doctor's explicit orders the entire wardrobe with all their other places to be cleared was delivered into her hands there was no doubt that julie would have defied the doctor even with eva gedge and her children to back him had not linnet conceived the happy idea of sending for mrs boyd and to everybody's relief mrs boyd came either because of her pleasant and equable disposition which julie so wistfully admired or because long ago in her girlhood she was known to have cherished a romantic passion for the elder sholto maggie boyd had a more dependable influence over julie than anyone else and it was certainly clever of linnet to have thought of her since the bannermans had left st jude's they had seen very little of their father's old friend but for this very reason she would have all the more weight now it was joanna who went for her and no sooner had the little old lady taken the situation than she put on her bonnet and cloak and came back to Colessy street bringing her daughter mamie with her she would have no nonsense she announced calmly leading julie in her gray dressing-gown away from a bewildered survey of the crowded box-room under the stairs and back to the bedroom julie was to come straight to high calvin place this very day to be nursed and kept in order joanna and mamie between them would be responsible for the flitting two great strapping girls she insisted indicating the two rather slender young women who sat either side on the edge of julie's bed if you leave everything to the young people my dear you will soon be led to see that your illness was providential and there's janet too a regular host in herself don't tell me i had no idea you were such a faithless christian julie bannerman very soon it was decided julie protested she even cried a little but she was smiling through her tears really she loved to be exhorted accused of lack of faith treated as a child except by her own household and though it still distressed her to think of her wardrobe and the disgrace of her cupboards she was actually got off in a cab by the afternoon all wrapped up in shells and childishly excited at the prospect of being ill at high kelvin place rather to joanna's surprise two days had passed without a word or sign from lawrence but on wednesday morning the post brought a letter addressed in his hand with a premonition of distress she opened it and read dear joanna they say troubles never come singly certainly that has been my experience this last few days when i got home here on saturday evening i found my mother had taken a turn for the worse and she died on monday it was her heart that gave out then this morning your letter reached me i am still too confused and stunned to grasp all that it means and fortunately as i must suppose my whole attention is still required for practical matters in connection with my mother's death you say i am to forget what passed between us on saturday 
as it was all a mistake on your part. Bitter as this is to me, I can understand it well enough. What I cannot understand is how I ever for a moment believed it was anything but a dream. But why is it better that I should not see you again? I do not want, nor do I mean to make any appeal, if that is what you are afraid of. But in the circumstances, surely it is for me to decide whether or not I am to see you again on the former friendly footing. You cannot know what it is to me to see you, or you would not ask this. If, as you say, you are the one in fault, how is it in your right to dictate the matter of my small remaining claim? You say you would rather have suffered yourself than to make me suffer. If this is true, then let your penance be the continuance of our relationship. Perhaps I need that just now more than the other. Forgive me if I seem rude, and believe me, ever your friend, Lawrence Urquhart. As she read this letter, anger struggled with acknowledgement in Joanna. Somehow she was thwarted by it, belittled and punished and put down, while the writer rose suddenly to a new place in her thoughts. She had to admit his right to make her feel not so much wicked as wanton and petty, but it angered her that the fate had tendered him the unexpected courage to use this right. If his mother had not died at that moment, Joanna tried to tell herself, he would have sent in a very different message. What, she wondered with deep interest, had his mother's death meant to him? Anyhow, she begrudged the event that had strengthened him by dealing two blows simultaneously. Could it be then that she had coveted the sole power of dealing him pain? In reply, she wrote a formal letter of sympathy and told him that she would be busy moving house for the next few weeks. Through the next ten days, she worked with Mamie Boyd and Janet, but harder than both of them put together. She worked harder than at any time before in her life, and far more efficiently. For the time, she put her drawings and all else aside. And from early each morning till past midnight, with hurried intervals for meals, hurled herself at the set task. She had met Lewis but once since their readjustment, and then only for a few minutes in the street. He too, as if in harmony with her, had taken to working harder and longer than before. But their one meeting had been significant, full of understanding and tremulous concord. Desire had hovered and beckoned behind the flimsy mask of his attention, as Joanna told Lewis how she was placed in sole charge of all the arrangements at home. And while she was speaking, this dumb appeal received its answer without need of words. He was smiling. She was very grave as he read the steadfast promise in her eyes, and both Mamie, who was her elder by five years, and Janet, who had been privileged to scold her not so long ago, obeyed her without question. They carried out her plans, which were surprisingly ingenious and practical, as if she were approved general. In every one of her actions, Lewis was in some way involved. But now she would not think about him. Her imagination was a falcon, hooded and chained to the appointed moment. But all her executive faculties were sharpened. She seemed to have eyes all round her head, to dwell upon a high watchtower, to be able to think collectively of a dozen things at one time. 
the state of the hidden places at Kalesi Street was a fresh revelation to her of her mother's cumbered life, and she became every hour more reckless in the work of simplification. She was sure that nine-tenths of the stuff they had housed all these years would neither be used nor missed by any member of the family, fuller and fuller, through the old ash pit in the back green. But Joanna had an inbred hatred of waste, and she would trudge up and down the long stairs fifty times a day, with her arms full, while Mamie made her heaps into bundles and dispatched them to this poor person or that charity. And at night, dazed with fatigue and satisfaction, she would stumble to bed. When she lay down, at first her thighs and the muscles of her back ached so acutely that she groaned aloud, but within five minutes she would be sleeping like a stone. In the sacrilege of the wardrobe, she would allow no one else to share. As the great curving mirror door swung heavily back upon its hinges, Joanna was a child again, and the enclosure with its trays and drawers and its middle place lined with faded blue box bleeding appeared to her as the very arc of romance. But at the quick of her excitement was something which had nothing to do with memory or with childhood, except in so far as it signified the departure from both. This, not the hour of her marriage with Mario, was the time of severance, the final breaking of the umbilical cord. Very slowly, she had drawn apart from her mother. Even while she had thought herself detached, she had really been held and harried. But now she was removing her entire being in an act of irreparable rebellion. And this was the symbol, this laying of her new alien hands upon her mother's treasures. For here were all the little souvenirs of Julie's lifetime, most of them valueless in themselves, but so precious to her that her children were accustomed to hold them in reverence. Among the many packets of letters and faded photographs neatly docketed and banded with elastic that snapped at a touch, Joanna found stray pages from an old Erskine journal. The delicately penned entries were very affectionate. Our sweet baby Purdy cut her second tooth on Thursday of this week. Old Nursey calls her our hen of gold was one that caught Joanna's eye. From further back in the same drawer came an inlaid cedar box. This was stuffed with tiny locks and plates of hair, each having been lovingly labeled. Our little Miranda's hair at two and a half years, September 1846. Darling Papa's hair at the time of his death, January 3rd, 1870. A piece of my hair cut off during an attack of brain fever in Rome, 1860. Mama's hair as an infant. Baby Robert's hair. Who, wondered Joanna, was Baby Robert? And here was one of her own locks as a baby, fair like gold silk, and Georgie's, only a little darker. And Sholto's quite dark like greenish bronze, and Linnet's like white floss. How many tresses there were? She drew out her mother's. It was unlike the other tight little sheaves of hair, being fine and long, full half a yard long, and the sheen of youth was upon it still. Eighteen, Julie had been, 
when her father's passion for education had brought serious illness upon her. Joanna carried it, lying silkily across her extended hands, to the window. Let the light play on it. Kissed it with sudden, sorrowful passion. Inhaled its pleasant, aromatic odor. And there, before the dressing-table mirror, which so often had reflected her mother's painful toilets, she laid it against her own fight round head. She had thought it was one of the very same texture and color as her own hair. Having restored it tenderly to its place, her next interest was her mother's square old jewel case. A wedding present, this, big and solid, covered with black Russia leather and lined with bridal satin. In spite of her knowledge of the contents, Joanna felt a string of the old childish excitement on opening it and lifting out the trays. Once Julie had a diamond ring and some pearl ornaments, presents from her bridegroom, but she had lost these long ago, and now there remained only some pebble and silver brooches or a cameo or two, a bunch of worn seals, a set of beautiful but clumsy amethysts, which were an Erskine heirloom, an ivory-carved fan with some of the sticks broken, a silver vinaigrette that still smelt faintly invigorating, the children's broken strings of coral. The girl went over all these, fingering them with a fresh curiosity, but there was nothing here she did not know by heart. Right at the bottom of her deepest drawer, however, she was to come upon some almost forgotten possessions. Here was some bed linen, too fine for the household chest. Here, pinned with a towel, was the bannerman christening robe with its intricate, wonderful embroidery of thistles all down the front. And beside it were a bunch of rare laces tied with tape and an infant's scarlet slipper. But the real find was a shawl which Joanna had never seen before. Had she set eyes on it even in her earliest childhood, she was sure she could not have forgotten it. Folded up, it had taken very little space in the drawer, for it was woven all of silk thread, and its deep fringe was of ivory-colored silk but the pulses of its finder quickened, and she shook the foreign thing out into a great gay square. It more than covered Julie's double bed with its rich, mellowed whiteness, and there were flowers and leaves all over, big blotches of scarlet and yellow and blue flowers, and little blue-green leaves that interlaced, and tendrils that were purplish, almost black between. When she had looked her fill at it, Joanna folded it again and put it on the top of a separate pile which had been growing steadily at one particular corner of the bed. On Friday, the day before the vans were expected, Joanna told the astonished but grateful Janet that she might sleep till Monday at a sister's house. She would only be asked to come for some hours to Kalesi Street the next day. Linnet had already found a bed with friends, and the boys were taking it for granted that Joanna would come to them. On Saturday morning, she was very early astir. The transcendent assurance of the preceding days still possessed her, and she felt finely strung, alert, complete mistress of herself. And of those about her, 
a perfectly adjusted instrument. Up and down the stairs she followed the burdened, staggering men, carried out many of the things herself, was there ready with a cloth when a few drops of rain fell upon the drawing-room cabinet as it stood on the pavement. She was hovering on the pavement, inspecting the half-packed vans and thinking how poor and undignified even the most cherished pieces of furniture appeared under the open sky when Lewis came up behind her and touched her and spoke. He was hungry and thirsty for a sight of her, he said, and his eyes bore out of his words as they rested by turns on her flushed face. Her little head, which she had bound from the dust with a green and yellow handkerchief, her old brown skirt half covered by a black apron. Might he come and see her tonight? Where would she be? Would she be alone? When and where would she ever be alone? There was something in his face as he pressed her. She did not take it to shame. That made him look a little brutal, but his brutality was something she could exercise. She would be waiting for him in the evening at the new house. Alone? Yes, if it could be. But he must go away now. When he had gone, she fled indoors and stood for a minute in one of the empty rooms, very still and white, with her hands clasped. Later, when all was done, and she and Janet were drinking a last cup of tea in the stripped parlor, using the window sill as a table, Mamie Boyd arrived. How fresh do you look, she exclaimed as she kissed Joanna more as if you had been having a holiday than a fitting. But you must be feeling quite worn out, all the same. I'll wait with you as long as there is anything to do. Mother says I'm not on any account to come home without you. While Mamie entered into a long explanation of why she had not been able to turn up earlier, Joanna was in an unreasoning terror. Would the boys somehow coerce her into coming to them? The image was absurd, but she could see herself being dragged by force past the door of the new house and over the bridge to High Kelvin Place. But what excuses she managed presently to shake Mamie off, she could never afterwards remember. She did it, however, without giving any definite promise, and almost pushed her too hospitable friend down the front steps. Soon afterwards, Janet also departed, having made the feeblest of protests. Left to herself, Joanna went slowly from room to room of the empty house in a mute farewell. Here, under this roof, she had spent her childhood and adolescence, and in leaving, she knew she was leaving her first youth behind. She had loved this home as well as hated it, and was prepared for some emotion of melancholy on the occasion of departure. But no such sentiment would rise in her, her spirit had already taken flight forward to a riper phase of life, and she was glad of it, and only glad. Without a single pang, she took leave of the despoiled sad walls. At La France Quadrant, when the unloaded vans had driven off with the men asprawl and joking inside, Joanna was able to at last shut the door upon staring humanity, which had all day been so interested in her and her belongings. It was a relief. She sat down on a packing case in the still-crowded hall. The new electric wiring had not yet been connected, and in the dusk of the spring evening the round stone pillars on either side of her might have been tree trunks. 
the confused shadows from the laburnum outside were thrown on the glass panel and fanlight of the front door she listened intently the house was utterly still and from outside she could hear no sound but the faint determined rushing of the stream far down where it passed by the flint mill she was cut off now from the rest of the world remote and alone waiting in a dense forest and she felt a little afraid but once she had left the hall going to the back of the house she began to be busy as a bird is busy with its nest already in one of the rooms each piece of furniture was in its place the windows were curtained and even some rugs had been unrolled upon the bare floor now joanna fetched fuel from the kitchen for the evening was cool almost frosty and when the fire had burned up she drew the curtains and began to unpack by candlelight for the last forty-eight hours she had been planning for this every least thing had been thought of beforehand she was of those who ever desire material fitness and she had discovered the same desire in lewis also it was one of the many bonds between their natures in a suitcase she had put together the few family possessions which had seemed to her worthy of her lover's eye and it did not take her long to dispose these the result was far enough from the perfect beauty she longed for but as she looked around upon her work she had a strong feeling of pleasure in the flickering light of fire and candles it was a room prepared for the beloved and therefore lovely for the first time joanna was alive to the clear sincerity of desire and the high silver candlesticks which had been a presentation to horatio bannerman from the st trude's congregation on the twenty-fifth anniversary of his ministry and the foreign shawl spread out as a coverlet upon the wide mahogany coach gave a glamour then putting on her hat and fingering the latch-key in her pocket to be quite sure she had it safe she went out to the shops more than once during her errands there she asked herself what she was doing she had no remembrance of having planned this it was as though she were blindly carrying out the orders of another but in one place there was a clock which pointed to half-past seven and straight on that panic seized her lewis if he got no further message was to be with her soon after eight to sup with her this sudden knowledge as it seemed sent her hastening toward home again the parcels she had bought kept slipping precariously through her trembling fingers i can still change my mind she told herself as she plodded back in agony to the house or something may have prevented him so that he won't come in any case i have only to tell him to go and a wild aloof amusement shot through her at the thought that she might simply not open the door if he came but in her return to the quadrant where the house was the last in a short blind row she saw that some one stood there her heart thudded sickly in spite of the uncertain light she recognized the figure of mrs boyd mrs boyd she had only to walk on to call out and she was saved but she neither spoke nor went forward instead she retreated with bird-like swiftness into a lane immediately upon her right and there waited and watched 
thanking the dim stars that the arrival had been during her absence from the house. Had she been in, she must have been caught. Meanwhile, the old lady, after gazing reproachfully at the dark windows from the pavement, reascended the steps and rang the doorbell with vigor. Joanna heard it screech in its socket once, twice, and between whiles she heard the visitor's knuckles rapping sharply upon the glass pane of the door. After five minutes passed, and the girl in hiding, though her reason told her it was merely a question of waiting, was half dead with fear. At last Mrs. Boyd gave it up and walked slowly away, passing the narrow end of Joanna's lane, and now and then looking back as if she still expected the house to give some sign. And Joanna pressed her body closer against the wall and kept quite still. No sooner had she drawn a breath freely than heavy footsteps coming up the lane from the far right struck a fresh terror into her. It was a policeman. He looked curiously at her as he passed, only seeing her face as a pale triangle beneath her hat and under his official glance she clutched her purchases as if they were stolen goods. Her fingers were stiff with the dragging strings, and the wet stalks of a bunch of anemones had soaked through her gloves. By this time, however, she knew that Mrs. Boyd must be well round the corner, so she made bold to leave the lane. The policeman on burly guard at the mouth of it followed her movements furtively and she could hardly endure it. She had to drop the parcels on the outside mat as she fumbled with chilled hands for the latch-key. But at last she was in, and at once she sank down in security. Vanished now was her mirage of serenity, gone her exhilaration. She felt stripped, dislocated, defenseless, and it was Lewis who had brought her to this. She hated and blamed him bitterly. But immediately, upon her blame, rose the clear, unsummoned memory of his face as she had first seen it. End of section 21